Welcome to the Empty Chair podcast, brought to you by Penn South Africa. I'm your host, Nadia Davids, the current president of Penn South Africa. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn marks the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there is an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from this symbol that the podcast takes its name. Each of our five episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison, a writer who has been curtailed, harassed, detained, tortured, sometimes fatally by the state. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with Osman Kavala, a publisher, civil and cultural rights activist, and philanthropist working towards peace, human rights, and democracy in Turkey. First detained in 2017, Kavala has been held ever since in Silivari Prison on the outskirts of Istanbul. He was charged for being responsible for crimes allegedly committed by protesters across Turkey during the 2013 Gezi Park protests. In October 2020, it was announced that he would face a new trial on charges of threats to constitutional order that carries a life sentence, with an additional 20-year sentence for espionage. He remains in pre-trial detention. In this, our fourth episode, our chair is Penn South Africa board member Bongani Kona, and our guest is Hedley Twidle. And together, they revisit Albert Camus' famed 1947 novel, The Plague, and discuss how it resonates with our experience of living through this pandemic. Bongani Kona is a writer, editor, and the co-curator of the Archive of Forgetfulness Project. He completed an MA in creative writing from the University of Cape Town and is the co-editor of Migrations, a short story collection. His work has appeared in a variety of publications and anthologies, and he was shortlisted for the Kane Prize for African Rising in 2016. I found this so striking that in the letters, Camus described the plague as emerging from a struggle for breath. Hedy Twidle is a writer, teacher and researcher based at the University of Cape Town. He specializes in 20th century Southern African and world literatures, as well as creative nonfiction and environmental humanities. His essay collection, Firepool, Experiences of an Abnormal World, was published by Quella in 2017, and Experiments in Truth, his study of narrative nonfiction and the South African transition, came out in 2019. I think, you know, what gives the plague and a lot of Camus writing a slightly eerie power when read in the light of the last year or so is how deeply he had thought about what illness did to one's experience of the world. Albert Camus' novel has been described as a story for our and all times. The plague tells the story of a deadly virus spreading across the French Algerian city of Oran. The stringent public health measures put in place to curb the spread of the epidemic eerily mirror our own present. The plague gives readers insight into the psychopathology of a society under attack. And in this episode, Bungani and Headley discuss both the novel's enduring appeal and the lessons Camus might hold for us. I'm joined by Hedley Twidle, a writer I have such immense admiration for. Welcome, Hedley. Thanks very much, Bongani. I think in my mind, you're not only a wonderful writer, but you're a beautiful reader. 
And I mean that in the broader sense of the word, because when I think back to some of your essays, um, Nuclear Summer, 27 Years, uh, 13 Ways of Looking at the End to you invite us to read alongside with you. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a book that matters deeply to you, The Plague by Albert Camus, and perhaps as a way of beginning our conversation. Uh, may I ask you to tell us, A, when you first read the novel, and afterwards, may I ask you to read a few pages? Well, thanks again, Bongani, for those kind words. I first read the book when I was studying French. I finished school in South Africa and I went to do a year abroad in the south of England. I was very miserable and uh, I took A-level French and one of the set works was La Peste by Albert Camus. And it's interesting to me, you know, I'd, I've been teaching the book now for the last few years and there's this interesting cycle whereby in some ways we, as literary uh, scholars or profs, we have to make a call about whether we're going to teach the works that we were taught, you know, which is in some senses a very conservative thing to do. But this was a book that I thought was worthy of keeping in mind and in play. Um, but I will say that when I was first taught it, there was absolutely no mention of where it was actually set, which is Algeria, Africa, North Africa. There was not a mention of that, which I think is very significant. And also that during this year at a, at a school that my father had gone to, there was very little uh, awareness or discussion of the British Empire or of colonialism. We studied the Third Reich, the Russian Revolution, ad nauseum. But it was quite stunning to me that as I sat in our history lessons with a very patronizing history teacher who used to call me our colonial friend, there was no sense that um, this country had been the catalyst for this immense world historical process, you know. Like Salman Rushdie said, the English don't know the history because it all happened overseas. And uh, so I think that even as this novel, um, Camus, grabbed me in the original French, which I've totally forgotten how to um, read and write now, it's amazing to me that I actually wrote essays on it in French, even as I was, I was grabbed by it at one level, there was a long history embedded in it and sometimes concealed in it that it's taken me years and years to, to extricate and to pull out. And I still feel as if I'm nowhere near a full understanding of that deeper social and political context that it came out of. Beautiful. Thank you. And if you don't mind, um, just reading a few pages from the text. Sure. So this is from the beginning of the second section. The book's divided into five parts. It's like the play graph, which we've all been watching over the last year in, in parts one and two. The plague is building, the graph is going up. And uh, at the, in part three, it's at its height. It's like the keystone of the work. And then in four and five, it slowly ebbs and the town is liberated again. So this is from the, the, second, the beginning of the second part of the book. From that point on, it could be said that the plague became the affair of us all. Up to then, despite the surprise and anxiety that these unusual events had brought us, everyone had gone on with his business, as well as he could, in the usual place. And that no doubt would continue. But, once the gates were closed, they all noticed that they were in the same boat, including the narrator himself, 
and that they had to adjust to the fact. This is how, for example, a quiet individual feeling, such as being separated from a loved one, suddenly became, in the very first weeks, the feeling of a whole people and, together with fear, the greatest agony of that long period of exile. One of the most remarkable consequences of the closing of the gates was, indeed, a sudden separation of people who were not prepared for it. Mothers and children, wives, husbands and lovers, who had imagined a few days earlier that they were embarking on a temporary separation, who had embraced on the platform of the station with some pieces of last-minute advice, sure that they would see one another a few days or a few weeks later, deeply entrenched in their idiotic human faith in the future, this parting causing barely a pause in the course of their everyday concerns, found themselves abruptly and irremediably divided, prevented from meeting or communicating with one another, because the gates were closed some hours before the prefectural decree was published, and of course it was impossible to consider individual cases. One might say that the first effects of this sudden and brutal attack of the disease was to force the citizens of our town to act as though they had no individual feelings. In the first hours of the day, when the decree took effect, the prefecture was besieged by a crowd of applicants who, on the phone or face-to-face -face with the town officials, were explaining situations that were all equally interesting, and at the same time equally impossible to consider. In truth, it was several days before we realized that we were in an extreme situation, and that the words compromise, favor, and exception no longer had any meaning. Even the faint satisfaction of writing letters was denied us. On the one hand, the town was no longer linked to the rest of the country by the usual means of communication, and on the other, a new decree forbade the exchange of any correspondence to prevent letters from transmitting the infection. At the beginning, a few privileged persons were able to get in contact with the sentries at the posts on the gates of the town and persuade them to take messages outside. This was in the early days of the epidemic, at a time when the guards found it normal to give in to compassionate impulses. But after a short while, when these same guards had become fully persuaded of the gravity of the situation, they refused to take responsibility for anything when they did not know where it might lead. Intercity telephone calls, permitted at first, caused such overcrowding in public phone booths and on the lines that they were entirely stopped for a few days, then strictly limited to what were described as urgent cases such as deaths, births and marriages. So, telegrams became our only recourse. Creatures bound together by mutual sympathy, by flesh and heart, were reduced to finding the signs of this ancient communion in a ten-word dispatch, all written in capitals. And since, as it happens, the forms of words that can be used in a telegram are quickly exhausted. Before long, whole lives together or painful passions were reduced to a periodic exchange of stock phrases such as am well, thinking of you, affectionately yours. Thank you, Hedley. That was really beautiful. And for the benefit of some of our listeners, may I ask you to sketch out just a brief synopsis of the plague and also the circumstances under which it was written. I found this so striking in the draft essay that you shared with me that in the letters Camus described the plague as emerging from a struggle for breath. It was also, he said, 
a response to a world without women. That I thought that was really striking. Yeah, thanks, Bongani. The story is a very simple one in some senses. Um, bubonic plague arrives in a town called Oran on the north coast of Africa in Algeria, what's now Algeria. And at first rats begin to come up from the sewers and the streets and there's this description of almost like the abscesses sort of coming up. It's quite grisly. Rats begin to emerge and die and uh, there's sort of consternation and then people begin to die. And it slowly dawns on everyone that the town's in the grip of an epidemic. And we then follow the fortunes of five characters. The narrator is a doctor, Dr. Rieu, although we only learn that he's the narrator later on in the book. So he's a sort of disguised narrator who takes it upon himself to tell uh, a chronicle. He says he's going to tell a very objective chronicle. Um, of what happened to this town. And indeed, it's a very male book. Um, you know, Camus saying it was, it was a kind of response to a world without women. Because he began the book in Oran. He was, of course, French-Algerian, born in Algiers. He'd gone to Oran for TB treatment. He, was a, he suffered from tuberculosis. And it had radically changed his sense of his life. He'd been a very active sporty young man and then after contracting TB he found himself reflecting at length on illness. He'd gone there, he started the book there, he didn't like Oran so that's why you get this sense that uh, the town is dull, business-minded. That's why it sort of reminds me of Cape Town a little bit. It's this seaside town which is at one sense quite beautiful but in, a, in another sense is rather um, vapid. You always have to go and look for the sea, the narrator says. And then he went to France again for treatment. He went to a place in the south of France um, under the misguided medical belief that being at high altitude helped um, TB. This was during the Second World War when France had been divided into an occupied zone and a free zone. The Allied forces then landed in North Africa, causing Germany to annex the whole of France. And you know, that's how Vichy France came about when there was a puppet government ruling over the south. And Camus found himself stranded in France, um, separated from his wife and his family in Algiers. And that's where he, he drafted the rest of, of, of the novel. And so it's interesting to me that in the very creation and drafting and gestation of the book, there's literally two geographies, there's two landscapes. One is Oran and one is France. And it's also imbued with this, I think, you know, what gives the plague and a lot of Camus writing a slightly eerie power when read in the light of the last year or so is how deeply he had thought about what illness did to one's experience of the world. And so the book is unusual because on the one sense it's often been interpreted allegorically as a symbolic representation of Nazism and the French, the occupation of France and totalitarianism. And yet on another level, it's an extremely convincing literal portrait of disease and suffering. And, you know, that's at the heart of the book's power, I think, and also the heart of its problems, because one thing is being represented by some other thing. 
Thank you, Hedley. Um, so I'm going to read a few lines from Jill Lepore's essay in The New Yorker, which she wrote sometime last year about stories about the plague. And I just want you to kind of respond to it. And this is what she writes. Um, she says that uh, plague stories tend to follow the same plot. Uh, humans lose their humanity. As the pestilence spreads, people grow fearful of one another. Families closet themselves in their houses. Stores take in their wares. Schoolhouses bolt their doors. The rich flee, the poor sicken. The hospitals fill, the arts wither. Society descends into chaos, government into anarchy. Finally, in the last stage of the seemingly inevitable regression in which history runs in reverse, books and even the alphabet are forgotten, knowledge is lost, and humans are reduced to brutes. Camus doesn't adhere to this convention in the plague, but I'll leave that, I'll leave that to you to respond. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think it's unusual in that sense. I mean, I've thought of it in dialogue with a book like Blindness by Saramago, where this sickness is called the white sickness starts to spread in an unnamed city, which, uh, you know, turns people blind. And it soon descends into a kind of a rule of the strong, a dystopian vision of a terribly violent vision as, you know, civil behavior breaks down. And, you know, we're all very familiar with that plot. I mean, it seems like if you open Netflix, modern society, human society just can't get enough of feeding itself visions of apocalyptic breakdown. So much so that it's, you know, post-apocalyptic landscapes have become passe in a strange way. So Camus' book is an unusual departure from that because several times the narrator says that he's trying to write this book with the courage of good feelings, and it's tr it's trying to offer a model of resistance, but it's very careful not even to romanticize the resistance. He was very he was writing in a post-war climate where he was very skeptical of post-war attempts to heroize the resistance, and you know people burnishing their you know what what other we call in a different context their struggle credentials or what have you. So he was skeptical of that. At another point in the book, it sort of it culminates with these two different endings. They're dissonant endings. There's the famous ending where we hear about how the plague bacillus never goes away and it's always lying dormant, waiting to come out again. So that's the ending that's often quoted, you know, the sort of suspended sentence that the book ends on, note of foreboding. But shortly before that, we also have this other conclusion that it reaches where the narrator says, you know, the point of this book was to say simply what one learns during such disturbances is that there's more to admire in men than to despise, which is, I would say it's an unusual conclusion for a 20th century writer who's come through Nazism, the resistance, writing in the wake of the Holocaust to reach. And so there's a sort of unusually sanguine tone in the book. Um, it doesn't uh, exaggerate. It tries to, if anything, decelerate and de-romanticize everything that's going on. So that it's, and, and I think this is why it also resonated with people during COVID, is that it's a very humdrum experience. It's like a boring lockdown in, 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 in a lot of senses. Occasionally there's these moments where you know, Camus, the lyrical essayist, seizes the controls from his alter ego, the rather pedantic doctor, and we get these descriptions of suffering and disease and the history of plague in, in human affairs, which are quite sort of 
magnificent and grandiloquent. But most of the time, the book is very low key. And so it's not that story of the breakdown of, of civil society in which, you know, where civilization is just a thin veneer. People like to say that, you know, it, it, it's not that it's, it's, it's trying to do something else. And what exactly it's doing, I can't quite name. It's something quite mysterious, the, the final moral position of the book. The novel, as you said, is set in Oran, an Algerian city, during the time of French colonialism. Yet the novel itself, and I could be misreading, seems to maintain a curious silence about this. The fact of French colonialism almost goes largely unremarked. And I wonder if you could just share some thoughts on that. Yes, absolutely. This is the great and puzzling silence at the heart of the book. And it's even more puzzling because early on in the novel, the narrator, Dr. Rio, is approached by a journalist called Rambert. And it's interesting how Camus split his own experience into his ensemble cast because he was an investigative journalist in Algeria. He was actually drummed out of the country for his exposés on, you know, famine and, and the misery caused by colonial policy. He was also a novelist. There's a novelist in the book and so on and so on. He, he was also missing his lover as another uh, character. But anyway, this investigative journalist comes to the doctor and says he wants to write about the conditions in the so-called Arab quarter. Right, right at the beginning of the book. And the doctor says, can you give an unqualified report? Can you give a total condemnation? Because if you can't, I'm not going to help you. And then the journalist sort of says, well, I don't know if I can give an unqualified report. And then the doctor says, well, I'm not going to help you. And it's a very weird moment because it's pointing to the fact of this colonial town, which, as Franz Fanon pointed out in the opening passages of The Wretched of the Earth, so memorably was a totally bifurcated town between the settler's town and the Medina or the reservation, the location, whatever other name it would go under in the colony. And yet the novel points to that. And then for the rest of the book, the subject is just dropped just it's occasionally present there's these weird moments at one point the journalist Rambert who's desperately missing his lover in Paris and he's trying to get a special dispensation to to leave the town he ends up hanging around waiting rooms and railway passages and at one point we see a poster recruiting for the colonial army but it's almost like that poster is taken as signifying something boring and humdrum you know so this is the strange, strange quandary presented by, by the book, is how can it be set in Oran, and yet the immediacy of the colonial predicament, the late colonial predicament, which was you know, gaining urgency as it did all over the world in the wake of the Second World War. Why is, not only why is it not there, but why does the narrator point to it and then drop it from view? So... You know, some critics have had an, a simple answer to that question. And uh, most famously, Conor Cruz O'Brien and Edward Said. And Conor Cruz O'Brien said, well, it's obvious why Camus leaves out this question. Because if the plague is in some sense an allegory of the Nazi occupation, then if you're going to frankly acknowledge a colonial setting, the allegory is going to break down. Because there were, you know, people in Algeria for whom um, the French presence was just as repugnant as the Nazis were in, in France and, and in Europe. And so he says, you know, 
it, it's this it's this contradiction that 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 is this noise in the allegorical system that the text can't resolve, so it has to drop it from view, and the result is that Oran becomes this unreal place. And it's always been interesting to me that in the first lines of the book, we're given the 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 time, the date as 1940 blank, and then we're told about Oran. And I always wondered why is the blank put in 1940? Why didn't he just call the town O and make it? you know, a never-was place, because in this attempt to hang on to a real place, the text just becomes, the book becomes immeasurably contradictory and complicated. So that was Conor Cruz O'Brien writing in 1970. In Cultural Imperialism, Edward Said sort of presses home the attack, but it's a very magnificent piece, actually, what Said writes about Camus. And he says that in the very ordinariness and the naturalness and the sort of humdrum nature of Oran that we're often given in the text. You know, underlying that is this vast ideological project which sought to make the French presence in North Africa as something natural and normal, such, such that it's not even worth remarking on for the, for the narrator. And, um, you know, he, he then says Camus' writing has this kind of paralysis to it, this negative vitality. It's kind of, it's like that interregnum that Gramsci spoke about where, you know, the old is dying, the new cannot yet be born, and in this interregnum a, a variety of morbid symptoms appear. So those were the, you know, very strong critiques of the plague, and, and they, in some senses, they're unanswerable. Um, but at the same time, I think there's still more to be said, and there's something still so mysterious, I think, in the way that the text signals that reality, um, and then, you know, doesn't look at it again. Thank you, Hedley. One of the other fascinating things about the plague and which you've sort of, you've mentioned already is the, is its structure, how the story is told almost in the form of a journal that contains also within it another journal. So may I ask you to speak a little about that? And, and also, uh, Camus opens the plague with an epigraph from Daniel Defoe's novel, Robinson Crusoe, which reads, it is as reasonable to represent one kind of imprisonment by another as it is to represent anything that really exists by that which exists not. What is being implied or signaled to us here? And yeah, could you speak about those two things, if it's okay? Yes, I've never, I've turned that epigraph over in my mind again and again, and I still can't quite work it out, or what, or how it's supposed to relate to the text. It is as reasonable to represent one kind of imprisonment by another, as it is to represent anything that really exists, by that which exists not. So is it reasonable to do that or is it not? I don't know. Um, but I mean, it is interesting that he, he goes to Robinson Crusoe, which is in, in a sense an archetypal myth of colonialism about a man establishing a fiefdom for himself on some distant island, but also that, you know, the English novel like Robinson Crusoe and again with Daniel Defoe when he writes his Journal of the Plague Year of London, it is... It works as impersonating documentary. The novel, in that sense, comes into being by passing itself off as an objective chronicle. You know, it, it inhabits it inhabits the, the the techniques of of the chronicle of the objective history, and you know that's exactly what the plague does. When we have the doctor saying, "Well, you know, I'll tell you why I've got the authority to tell the story. It's because it's what I saw." It's also the documents that came into my possession. And it's interesting when you, you know, so at the beginning, the play presents itself as this objective account, realist account, perhaps. But then when you look into it, it's just this weave of different kinds of written document and text and speech type. 
I read about the telegrams earlier where people have to condense all this feeling into these stock phrases. It's a lovely passage. And then there's this diary of a man called Tarou. So we are given this diary uh, as a kind of way of accessing the more absurdist, funny, everyday, quotidian elements of the town. You know, for example, he tells this man Tarou, who's a kind of, uh, he seems to be a man of independent means who was just holidaying in the town when he got caught there. He records how on the balcony opposite him every day an old man comes out, tears up bits of paper, scatters them over the balcony, and then this, there's like a snowfall of these white bits of paper, and then the cats come out, and then he spits on the cats, and then he laughs. You know, <laughs> so it's these just random details. And then he, 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 he goes into a lot of, of, of other sort of absurd details, which activates the sort of slightly... Sometimes it reads a little bit like Kafka. I mean, an early reviewer said that Camus' prose was like Kafka written by Hemingway, which I think is quite funny. Um, and there's this kind of slight sense of the Kafka where there's, there's this calamity arriving, but everyone's trying to deal with it in these laughably bureaucratic or managerial ways. Anyway, the thing about this diary is that we, we read it as we go, but then later on, we learn that Tarou, who has become a very close friend of the narrator, dies just as the plague is ebbing the plague is presented as this very capricious unpredictable thing and just as it seems like everyone's out of danger it claims this man whom the narrator has grown very close to it's really a novel of male intimacy in some way a world without women um, which has been another critique of the book so in retrospect these diaries which at first seemed like you know um absurd, harmless fun, are also kind of elegy for a lost comrade in arms, for a lost friend. So that's just one example of the way that this objective chronicle actually becomes this very metafictional, almost like a hall of mirrors, um, that different written documents are being played off against each other in the book all the time. And another, probably my favorite character is this man called Joseph Grand. It's an you know, ironic name for a small mild-mannered civil servant who on the one hand he becomes the unlikely hero of the book because he leads the health teams but in his spare time and what he thinks is really important is this novel that he's been working on for years and years and years but he's never got beyond the first line which is this very flowery overwritten cliched description of this horsewoman trotting through the flowers of the Bois de Boulogne and he, he can't get past this this first line he's a sort of amateur novelist and again, you know, there's this um, sense in which the entrapment of this first line, the paralysis of this first line, figures these other kinds of paralysis because, you know, the same films are showing on the cinemas because new films can't come. The same record plays in the bars. It's Louis Armstrong singing St. James Infirmary, which is also interesting because there's this whole blues tradition of bluesmen singing about the hospitals where they found themselves in. The same opera company has to put on the same opera every night, which is Gluck's Orpheus and Eurydice. And, you know, when Grand eventually gets the plague, he miraculously recovers, and then he tells the narrator, you know, tear up that manuscript. I'm done. Then we break out of the paralysis and the frustrated plots of the center of the book. There's all kinds of cul-de-sacs in the center of the book. It's quite a hard book to read. And then finally we break out of that and we, we you know, the narrative breaks out and goes towards an ending, towards a denouement, that French word meaning an unknotting this unknotting of these destinies of these 
five very solitary men who've come to this understanding of solidarity, you know. So, yeah, what looks like, what claims to be a kind of medical report at first is actually and obviously a very, very literary and self-aware um, novel, uh, literary work comprised of all kinds of different textures, discourses, texts, speech types, languages. I think my follow-up question is that, in his own mind, Camus judged the novel to have been a failure, and I wanted to know if you could maybe speak a little about that as well. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. He judged the book a failure. In another sense, it's his most successful work. It's never been out of print. It's been read widely ever since it was published. In one way, it almost became the book of the COVID pandemic. People were writing about it all over the world. I read accounts from Seoul, from Washington, from, you know, all over the place. But what what is this failure that he's haunted by? It's also interesting that the books he thought were successful, which were his more sort of politically explicit tracts, like um, The Rebel, The Myth of Sisyphus, have kind of faded from view. I mean, I don't quite know, but if I if I were to guess... I would say, having read across his work and having read his reflections on his native land, Algeria, which he deeply loved and was deeply pained to see edging towards a cataclysmic war, you know, one of the worst of all the decolonial conflicts. I think it was the paralysis and failure that history put him into as someone who couldn't bring himself to accept or to side with the kinds of violence that certain actors saw as necessary to end French colonialism. I think this is the kind of paralysis and failure that having been a man of arms in the Second World War and having fought Nazism, having been a war hero in some ways. When the decolonial endgame began to gather pace and to become more and more polarizing and more and more violent in Algeria, he became an isolated figure. He was he, he eventually lapsed into a kind of silence on the Algerian issue where some of his fellow intellectuals like Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir had fully thrown their weight behind, you know, the liberation, uh, the National Front of Liberation that was campaigning for an independent Algeria. Camus couldn't bring himself to do that because he couldn't support what he regarded as acts of terror against civilians, planting of bombs on the tramways of Algiers and so on, you know, in a, in a sort of very famous but very misquoted um, statement. He was, when he received the Nobel Prize, which, uh, you know, I think he felt he got way too young and which seems to have plunged him into a terrible depression. Uh, when he got the Nobel Prize, he was heckled by an Algerian student at a press conference who said, well, you know, why don't you sign petitions on behalf of the FLN? If you sign petitions on behalf of Eastern European dissidents opposing Stalinism, why can't you support us? And he made a statement 
and he ended by saying, you know, people are planting bombs on the tramways of Algiers. My mother might be on those tramways. If that is justice, then I prefer my mother. Now that statement was misquoted and reproduced as between my mother and justice, I choose my mother. And, you know, he then became a kind of ridiculous figure for people like Sartre and de Beauvoir, a sentimentalist, not, not sort of honest or aware of the facts of um, the decolonial process. You know. And I think it's that embattledness um, and that, the, 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 for me, the, the quandary and the strange thing about the plague is that even as it comes out of the Second World War, it's a pacifist text. There's no violence in it. There's no villains in it. Because the scourge, the political scourge of Nazism has been transmuted into a biological phenomenon. And this is a problem that a lot of people have had with the book, you know, saying it evades accountability, responsibility. And you know how weird to read a symbolic response to Nazism with no baddies, <laughs> no villains. So, you know, that that is, in a sense, it's failure, if you want to put it that way. But at this, at this, by the same token, I think it's also what allows the book to still keep on speaking, because it, it detaches the work from any absolutely specific context. And that's why I think people find echoes in the book, um, even though its allegorical system is full of noise and contradiction. It's, it is a hall of mirrors in which one can get lost in. But I think the failure is, I think the failure if I had to put my cards on, I'd say it's, 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 it's the failure of Camus to really realize the reality of anti-colonial nationalism, you know, and thinking that it could still be a federation in which everyone could be accommodated in a Mandela-like vision, when actually events had already escalated beyond that. He campaigned for a civilian truce, but events had already escalated. And I think it, it you know, the, the book, something about his work speaks to that terrible and painful conundrum, um, which is, is, I suppose, also about being born on the wrong side of history, you know, and of knowing that the people who were being vilified by Sartre and the like were, were his family, you know, which was a poor family. His mother was illiterate. He was from very, very humble beginnings. And he couldn't see himself. He couldn't see himself in the discourses that, that, were, that were taking place over the war. So I think that's where, if it is a failure, that's where the failure resides. Though sometimes I would prefer the failure uh, to the success or the victory of people like Sartre, who were so confident and sometimes even gleeful in cheering on violence from which they were far removed. Um, thank you, Hedley. And the other question comes from your draft essay. And you write in there that the question of disease is always political. And I was really struck by that line. This is why the plague, you say later on, when read in the time of coronavirus, doesn't need the lens of metaphor to maintain its resonance. It is a work that has been re-literalized by global events and come across in one sense as an all too plausible account of life under lockdown, a malevolent holiday in which a jittery simulacrum of normal life persists. Can I just ask you to add a few sentences about that? Absolutely. I mean, I suppose I was writing this and thinking about this in mind of Susan Sontag's wonderful and heroic work on illness. You know, um, first of all, illness as metaphor, where she talks about TB and cancer, and then AIDS and its metaphors, where she 
right in the middle of the onset of the HIV AIDS pandemic in, in North America. And she says that, you know, the whole impetus of her inquiry is to destigmatize disease by not allowing it to become an easy metaphor. The book comes out of her regret, actually, at having described Western civilization as a cancer. You know? And she, she, thinks, she says, you know, cancer should not be enlisted in that metaphorical act. And she says the healthiest way of being ill is the least metaphorical way. You know, that's, uh, we should resist that temptation to metaphorize. Which sounds, at the outset, like it's a critique of the plague. But actually, later on, she goes on to exempt Camus' work from her, from her critique because she says that it's not really metaphorizing anything. It's more um, a sort of meditation on mortality itself, and it's not about bringing judgment. And I suppose it's you know it's, it, it kind of joins a canon of works where disease just becomes a more heightened way of being alive and being aware of encroaching death, which is again why I think the work summons in a lot of readers from around the world, but is again why it produces problems, because it, it becomes a kind of universal fable. you know. And I suppose in my discipline, in my world, people are always very suspicious of universalisms, because universe, what seem to be universalisms have generally often been premised on, you know, historically specific values, which have often been, you know, Eurocentric, if one looks at the colonial situation. So, um, I, I think the the sort of larger question the book opens onto, and and so does Franz Fanon really in the closing passages of The Wretched of the Earth, is to think about what humanism would be if it was extending the vision of the human to everybody and not walling out people um, or, 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 or stigmatizing people uh, or refusing treatment to people or having a situation which literally your GDP is determining at what point you get a vaccine. I mean, to look at those maps of COVID and the vaccine rollout is to, you know, just to see that after all has been said and done, after all these discussions, when it comes down to it, you know, those maps have a horrible echo of, you know, historical maps of the colonial project. So I suppose it's, it's again this dance between the specific and historical and the universal fable that the, the work tempts one into and that's a almost irresolvable kind of tension i think so thank you Hedley. i think we'll end it there as a tribute to osman kavala Hedley will read from the last page of the plague however he knew that this chronicle could not be a story of definitive victory it could only be the record of what had to be done and what no doubt would have to be done again against this terror and its indefatigable weapon despite their own personal hardships, by all men who, while not being saints, but refusing to give way to the pestilence, do their best to be doctors. Indeed, as he listened to the cries of joy that rose above the town, Rio recalled that this joy was always under threat. He knew that this happy crowd was unaware of something that one can read in books, which is that the plague bacillus never dies or vanishes entirely, that it can remain dormant for dozens of years in furniture or clothing, that it waits patiently in bedrooms, cellars, trunks, handkerchiefs, and old papers, and that perhaps the day will come when, for the instruction or misfortune of mankind, the plague will rouse its rats and send them to die 
in some well-contented city. Thank you so much for your time and for your insights, Hedley. It's been incredible talking to you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much, Bongani. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining this conversation. Thanks to board member Bongani Kona for chairing and to Hedley Twidal for his insightful reading of The Plague. This episode was produced by the wonderful Fasti Kalitz and Andre Burnett. Thanks to our brilliant podcast project coordinator, Lara Buxbaum, to Kate Hyman for her support, to the board of Penn South Africa. Thanks too to Nduko Omatigera and Romana Caccioli from Penn International for their support, because this project would not be possible without them. Join us again in a couple of weeks for our next episode of The Empty Chair. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our continuous solidarity with imprisoned rises across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>